You're listening to the Our Eerie Podcast with Devonna Paisley, Marty Wachuku, and Lydia Laith. We're here to highlight community voices and bring new perspectives to the table. We are unpacking Eerie's and America's baggage. We're speaking truth to power. Take a seat. Hey, Our Eerie listeners, and those who are listening for the first time, this is Devonna Paisley. And this is Lydia Laith. This is Marty Wachuku. And we are so happy to bring you y'all here uh, today for another episode. With it being Mental Health Awareness Month, we wanted to take this episode to discuss the importance of the month and mental health. Um, and today we have Dr. Uh, Shraddha Prabhu with us, and she's going to just kind of share a little bit about herself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on this wonderful wonderful forum. Um, so my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I was going to say I wear many hats, but it sounds like I wear one and take off, take it off and then wear another, which isn't really true. <laughs> um, so my identities are pretty intersectional, like most, most people's. I am a cisgender, upper class, class able-bodied, Solidly in the middle class, American middle class, that <laughs> uh, brown woman. I'm also a clinician. Uh, I'm a researcher, an educator, and a lifelong learner. I'm uh, a spouse, a sister, a daughter. Um, and uh, let me see, am I missing anything? A pet mom. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much all I can think of right now. Yeah, this yeah. is so awesome. It's so awesome to have you on here, Shrada. So for, for people that don't know, uh, Shrada was, are you still teaching at Edinburgh or? Yeah. Okay. And so so Shrada actually was my professor, one of my professors at Edinburgh when I was getting my master's degree there. So uh, I looked up to her then. I still look up to her now. But it was so cool uh, to be able to bring her on the podcast and, and stay in touch after graduating because... Uh, it's always cool to to stay in touch with people that you look up to and role models. Well, Lydia, that is um, pretty humbling to you because you are doing some pretty amazing things out in the world, making the world a better place. And it is very inspiring to see everything that you're getting done. So mm-hmm. thank you. I, our, how I met Shraddha was very interesting. <laughs> it was a very interesting time. Um, I, we met at the, uh, Oh man, what were we at the brewery? It was an art gallery night that we had went and met, and we actually met through uh, some issues of uh, the patriarchy. I should say, <laughs> yeah, being a co- not accosted uh, verbally by this guy. So then we end up like her, myself, and Angel. We end up having a really deep conversation after that, um, and so of course through through that conversing, and then obviously through uh, Tyler, Tyler Titus, um, we were able to like, you know, connect in that way. So it's, I'm just now excited to have you now here on this, on the show with us. We ever, I know, right, Lydia? I know that's how we would meet, right? Of course. <laughs> Misogyny. So, <laughs> um, but, but it was, it was a nice, it was really awesome to really still like meet you during that time, even though it was a shitty time, we still, you know, we, we came together and, and that was, that was beautiful. Yeah. And I guess there's never a time in the history of human beings when it's not shitty and not wonderful at the same time. I think it just comes together. 
right? Right? <laughs> so true. I've had a chance to run into Marty many times. Yeah, I was about to say, we've run into each other, but I don't think we've actually, like, talked, talked. So I'm excited to have this space to get to know you. Let's jump into a little bit of your background. You know, what really, you know, I'm really interested to know you um, and and to know a little bit more, more about your, you know, what brought you uh, to Erie and, like, what brought you to, you know, th- through your path. It's a long, winding path. And actually, my path starts much before me, like most of us, right? Um and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the amazing women who got me here, starting with my grandmother. Um, so my grandmother was one of 13 children, and um, she never uh, got a chance to get educated. Uh, she was married to a stranger at the age of 16, and uh, uh, she had two uh, children who identified as women and one child who identified as male. Uh, and she sat outside her, um, she sat outside this principal's office till he finally got fed up of her and said, okay, fine, I'll let your t- children into the school. And so <laughs> that was the start of why I'm here is because she fought for my mother and my aunt to get an education. And not just any education, an English education, which makes a world of a difference for in America, but also in most parts of the world, because it's really um, one of those tools that you can use for upward mobility, right? So I think she, she did what she could to get my mom a leg in. And then that's how I actually ended up where you're. Um, but the way my life has worked out, um, I came here for my graduate studies. I'm the first uh, person in my family to earn a master's and a doctoral degree. So uh, their efforts were not a waste. <laughs> and in fact, let me go back a little more. Um, so one of the earliest reformers um, and um, champions of education for women in India was uh, Jyotibai Phule, and she was um, a Dalit woman. Uh, Dalit is an umbrella term that is used for people who were formerly uh, belonged to under the untouchable caste. Um, and so but she championed uh, the cause for study, uh, for access to education for women. So it's a long, it's I'm here because of the efforts of a lot of really powerful and dedicated people who went against the system mm-hmm. and the norms. So very much like you all. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So I got my um, I got my doctorate in social work, and um, I came to Erie in um, to for my job as an assistant professor on tenure track. Um, my research focuses on violence against children and youths, prevention of violence, um, trauma, and resiliency. Um, I'm starting off my clinical career, my official clinical career, um, and I work with uh, queer youth. I work with um, immigrant and resettled families. Uh, one of my goals is to learn Nepali, or rather relearn Nepali and learn Spanish so that um, 
is a wider group of people that I can provide services. Yes. Sorry, I go off on tangents oh, all the no, time. No, that's fine. Not a tangent at all. It's so, no. it's just, it's sometimes I feel like when you hear so much like powerful and like inspiring information like you kind of just want to like soak it in sometimes and i know that it doesn't work always so well on podcasts because then there's like this silence in our our podcast you'll hear it sometimes we're like we'll sit there but i just feel like sometimes we just like bask in like the information like oh thank you for like gifting us with this so thank you for sharing that it's interesting you say about silence i'm like okay i need to learn to get comfortable with silence though like if there is that pause then it's okay. Like, you know, you're able to just kind of think. And so it's something that I'm like really trying to get comfortable with <laughs> because it's hard. Yeah. Well, when, you, when you're a therapist, which I'm sure Shraddha can relate to, like you use silence a lot. Like I use that all the time. Like, okay, I'll ask a question. And until you answer it, I'm just going to sit here in silence. Like, mm. that's okay. You know, you get comfortable in it, but uh, yeah. So, so thinking about mental health and and may being mental health awareness month right um you know i guess what do you see shada as like maybe your your most exciting goals for mental health work here in erie or or maybe you know what what are things that you're excited about around kind of the mental health field because we have so many people working in mental health and trauma-informed care and things like that in erie um is there anything that you're really passionate about right now yeah. So one of the things that has been um, in the incubator that uh, I've been talking with my spouse, but some friends and colleagues as well, is uh, kind of setting up a network of maybe paraprofessionals, people who are from the community and in the community, underrepresented, underserved rather, and marginalized communities uh, to destigmatize mental health, to better understand what mental health, social supports, well-being in uh, in these communities, um, and so kind of have almost we have call it the community-based um, research model, but community-based practice model, and very much from the public health perspective is how do we empower people in the community to create safe and resilient communities, um, and that's pretty much a model that is used in many developing countries. Uh, it's definitely been used in India to prevent and address domestic violence um, and, to, and to address, um, prevent um, other forms of gender-based violence like female feticide, increase maternal and child health mm -hmm. services and reduce stigma against that. Uh, use of um, bathrooms instead of um, bathroom use of toilets is such a basic thing, but not everybody has access to it. And it's a big public health and safety issue. And so anyways, <laughs> um, point is that these are models that have been used and found to be effective um, in many parts of the world. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to start to build on the work that's already being done and add to it. So yeah. that's my five-year goal that's also it kind of reminds me of like work marty like it's almost like combining all the things that we do like community organizing mm -hmm. social work counseling you know like networking all these things that we already do but like in one form isn't that kind of what we the dream society is is that we all take these holistic approaches to all these issues you know 
Absolutely. That's why I became a doula, because I feel like it's the all encompassing work of like advocacy, but also empowerment, but also um, really giving that power back to the birthing person who is, you know, the one that has to go through this experience. But not only the birthing person, the support people and the people around, you know, around um, the, the family member. And I think that education is super important. So that's applicable to my work. That's applicable to your work. Right. And and also the therapist's job. So it's just really all encompassing. And I really would love to start to see um, a lot of more of us kind of maybe connecting our resources in that way. Like um, I was even thinking about like my own personal uh, journey of my, you know, growing my business, uh, but not just looking at it in the business aspect, but looking at it as a community collective space of, okay, well, I have these therapists. So with some of my clients, I say, okay, there's some therapists I know, there's some resources I know that I can although I can't do it and I can't afford that for you, you can, you know, these are the people that you can use. And so I think that, that, that seeing that connection is really important. Um, and I love that we're networking here because we all can really, you know, we all have the opportunity to do that. So. No, I just wanted to learn a little more from your perspective about your perspectives on mental health. Yeah. Let's, let's go around, around the table. Rada, do you want to start off by just saying like, what is your, maybe even not currently, but like growing up, kind of what was your perception of mental health and how it was discussed um, versus now? Hard sometimes to separate the history of colonization mm-hmm. from contemporary practice and kind of determine what is each. Uh, but one of the impacts of colonization is that we were robbed of the resources that would have been available to us to invest in our communities and in our sciences, in the development of systems that for well-being. And um, so mental health is not only stigmatized, um, but there aren't enough resources, there aren't enough trained professionals to provide mental health services um, in India. And of course, people being as creative and resilient will find all sorts of ways to meet their needs. And some of these practices are harmful, um, while others work quite effectively. So usually, access to mental health services is more through social capital, um, that is, um, reaching out to networks within the community formal counseling. So some of the benefits being not only in the industrialized countries, but being part of the middle and upper middle class in in industrialized countries is that you get access to, uh, well, the research is conducted on people who look like you, who have an education like you, uh, and then your services are tested and then fine-tuned to meet your needs, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it's a little, com- it's complicated. Everything is complicated, right? But um, I think mental health, uh, people usually think of mental health um, being uh, you're either mentally ill or you're not, right? But mm-hmm. in that, right, you can... There's no way you can go through a traumatic life experience or experience systemic oppression and not have an impact. It's like, oh, you get beaten up and there are no bruises on you. Mm -hmm. That's just not possible. And that's not possible when there's historic 
and trauma. And so it isn't the absence of mental illness as much as what resources are there for healing and coping and growth. Um, and that's how I see it. Mm. So I see it not as a reflection on individuals, mm-hmm. but on society. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Oof. I just want to bask in that again, right? Like, yeah. oh, it's so, yeah. so accurate. I love that. I have so many thoughts. As Go ahead, Devana. Yeah. I have so many thoughts as to what you're saying as like far as resources. Just the idea of like mental health, I guess. For me, I'm trying to think of like the first time mental health, like what what it meant, like when I was younger, as opposed to now. I will say that when I was younger, mental health was pick painted as, um, you know, having that one quote unquote crazy family member, you know. And sorry for using that, you know, but using these derogatory terms that were, um, that was the narrative of like what mental health problems were to me until I realized that I had my own mental health problems, right? Like struggling with anxiety and depression. And, um, and, you know, I think now realizing like, okay, uh, mental health is not a negative thing. It's just something that we all literally go through, right? Like, you know, and I think for me, it was, not until I saw my fam- a family member, and I don't want to say that, but not until I saw a family member go and get some support and say, okay, like, I think I need medication and really sit down with us and talk with me and talked about how they really needed to like, you know, go get that support. And I'm like, well, shit, like, wow. Like that, that was my first time realizing like this in, you know, our community and my, in my community, my family, this is something that does happen, but we don't talk about it, you know? Um, and so I think that through like personal experiences of, you know, being younger, I was actually telling Angel just recently, we just today literally had a conversation about me um, when I was, I can't remember, I think I was about a teenager. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting down, eating a fudge sickle and watching, I, w- I was watching Oprah with my mom and I will never forget starting, I started to have some like hyperventilation. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, I don't, like, I'm like, you know, breathing. And then I can't, I can't even remember what happened after that. I know my mom called the ambulance and, you know, we got to the doctor and I, you know, got set up with the EKG and all that. And, you know, and after that, I was like, the doctor was just like, oh yeah, you had palpitations. More so was anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what triggered that, right? Like what triggered this emotion? Um, what triggered these feelings for me to even have this panic attack? Um, and that really realizing like, and then throughout my, you know, my 20s, having panic attacks, having anxiety, um, but realizing that it was not, it was something that I just really needed to go to, I needed to go see a therapist, you know, and it, I didn't go see a therapist till I was whew, getting ready, like 28, you know what I'm saying? 27, 28 not really, you know, knowing what, what to do. So I reached out and they said, listen, I need a therapist. And I'm giving y'all like the very watered down version of just like this whole, cause it's, we only got an hour. Okay. So basically, <laughs> but just kind of realizing like, you know, right now for me personally, just to be like very, you know, transparent, I think this is important for us to talk about is right now I'm really doing a lot more inner child work because we like, we talked about this before we even started recording. Uh, there's a lot of things that I think as an, as a child, I, you know, struggled with, you know, being 
uh, open about my emotions or keeping things in, being the firstborn and being like, okay, my parents have so many other stressors. I want to make sure that they're okay, but nobody, but nobody, but realizing that I had to still make sure I was okay. And that's at 33 years old that I have to realize like my mental health is super important and not that I don't care about anybody, you know, my family, my friends, my spouse, uh, or my niece enough. It's that I have to make sure that I'm okay. Cause if I'm not, then, you know, nobody around will be, nobody around me will be as well. Um, And I think that's like when I realized mental health was super, you know, super important to talk about, but also super important to be transparent with, you know, my family and my friends, because, there's days where like, you know, you struggle and then there's days where like, you're good, you know? And I think that's realizing that's just like the facts of life is just, you know, realizing that like, you'll, you'll be okay, you know? And I can say that for myself, you know, that's just where I've come, you know, through my journey of mental health. Um, But I like this to talk about self-care later because I actually want to bring up something about that. But that's just my experience of, of realize of mental health and what the importance was in my journey from like, realizing that it's super important. It doesn't have to be a negative, uh, negative Mm -hmm. stigma to it. Yeah. Thank you, Devona. Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) Marty, did you want to share? Yeah. Um, it was much later that I feel like I was exposed, not to, I don't want to call it an idea, but like the awareness that it was a thing. Um, it's not something my family ever really talked about. If you saw someone, on the street acting a certain way, they would say they were crazy or like, I was aware like there was something wrong with people, but I didn't, I wasn't really aware that there's illnesses and what these illnesses are. Um, And that's when I finally learned about it, I came to understand mental health as you're either okay or you're extremely mentally ill. And even in health class, I don't feel like we ever really touched on it. Mind you, I went to Catholic school. So I always asterisk things with like, I don't know um, what's taught in public schools, but it wasn't until college where one of my best friends had real anxiety like we were always hanging out with each other and she's always stressing and worked up and she wasn't like my other friends where i could say like it's okay you're gonna be okay you're gonna work past it like there was something that regardless of what i said or how she would adjust things like she needed Mm -hmm. help and it's like oh when we say we're anxious it's not just this feeling i get before a speech it's like this is real something is going on chemistry wise or i don't fully understand and i was like okay now i know and i looked up on on it and understood it a little more fully it was only because i had a friend who was going through something um but after that i i feel like the conversations in the last few years maybe i have the privilege of being a millennial that i feel like there's more conversation about it online my friends are very open about it um i myself ex post facto after school realized like my last two years of school I was totally depressed but it's not something I was aware of it in the moment and I didn't have um the knowledge of like these symptoms or these things that I'm experiencing are telltale signs of like depression mm-hmm. um and it wasn't until COVID la- and I had always thought about I always thought you know for what I think what mental illness looks like or people who go get help or therapy, I'm okay. I don't need that. Um, So even though I thought maybe I would benefit from it, I just didn't do it. And it wasn't until COVID last year where I had a really hard time and I started feeling like I did, but even worse. So like I did in college that I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to go to therapy. And I don't really fully understand it, but it's something I need to try. I'm not okay right now. 
Um, and it'll be a year coming up soon that I've been doing it. Um, and it's, it's not what I expected. I don't know. I thought like there'd be Rorschach tests and <laughs> I, <laughs> the first day I walk in, I'd be like, you need medication, but that's not what it is. It's just, um, unpacking either your day-to-day experiences mm-hmm. or these big things that I need to work through. And then also recognizing trends and patterns in my past that keep me from moving forward. So um, mm. it's a quick and dirty of kind of my coming to understand. And I'm still learning a lot. I still don't feel like I'm as sensitive as I could be or have all the awareness um, that I need to be um, supportive of people. But I'm just happy to be part of this conversation that there's conversations happening. Yes. Uh, thank you for sharing. Yes. Uh, so I grew, I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where my mom was a social worker pretty much my whole life. So conversations around, um, mental health and, and therapy was never far from, from our, you know, family dinner table. Um, I also was blessed to have the father that I did for a thousand reasons, but, um, my dad, he, his one of his older brothers completed suicide when he was um, like fresh out of college when my dad was out of college. So he was probably like in his mid or late twenties, the the brother. And uh, I think that, and then my dad, I think struggled with his own mental health throughout his youth. And then as an adult, I don't know if he struggled with it or if he kind of just figured it out for himself. I'm, I'm not sure how it all worked out, but um and my dad went and his brother went through a lot of trauma as well. But uh, I think that those experiences uh, like heightened his awareness. And so he like any time I would spend time in my room, I remember one time in high school, like I was just feeling really down and I don't know exactly. I don't remember what happened. I think I was probably just like bullied or feeling socially isolated and so I was just like ripping up paper in my room I was like sitting on my floor just like ripping up pieces of paper and just because like it felt therapeutic and cathartic to like I don't know yeah Um, and my dad came in and and asked like how I was doing and 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 had a really frank conversation with like Lydia are you feeling like you want to hurt yourself are you feeling suicidal are you feeling like and and I think that that my dad's experiences um with his family and with his own mental health really shaped his approach in having kind of really frank conversations and really um, destigmatizing it for me, even before I was having more like public conversations with peers or with people in like a professional setting. And so from then on, as then I go into the field of social work and get my bachelor's and master's degree in it, like that was always in my head of normalizing it because at the end of the day, and so I just, I love everything you said, Shrada, because that, I mean, it just all rings so true for me. And I've said it to people before, specifically around trauma, but that like our symptoms of of mental health struggles after we've experienced trauma are normal reactions to abnormal situations, right? That like, we are not made to experience the kinds of trauma that we experience, like abuse, like neglect, like, you know, witnessing um Vi- domestic violence or you know what suicide or, or anything like that and so 
you know, when we have certain reactions, whether it's anxiety, depression, PTSD, like those are normal expected. Like it would be strange if you experienced, like you said, like if you got in an accident and didn't have bruises, like if you went through these things and didn't have these symptoms, like that would be abnormal. And so that's been the like approach that I've always taken. Uh, like the, I, maybe I've said this on the podcast before, but like the the greatest compliment I ever received from a client after I was working at a in, um, a residential crisis facility, actually Safe Harbor's crisis residential unit. So it's like short-term stay. People come for like a week. And I, I had worked a week in there with a group of people that were experiencing a lot of different kinds of mental illness. There was like people with depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. Um, and I had worked the weekend just being the aide. So I had been like making food with them or like playing games or cleaning up or whatever. And as I was leaving, because by the time I would come back the next weekend, they would have all been gone because it was just short-term stays. And when I was leaving, one guy came up and said, you made it feel normal. Like I had made this experience of being in an inpatient residential crisis, like mental health facility feel normal to him. And that has like stuck with me forever <laughs> that like we all just want to feel normal. Like we're not like we're not crazy. Like we're not like un, un like inhuman like we're not some freak that can't be talked to or or engaged with that's not part of the community um that we all just want to feel like part of it and so i i think taking it one step further right so i, I started with this idea of like people struggle with this and we need to help each other because we all struggle and and we need to help one another to now kind of to your point Shrada, like understanding that these are really symptoms of systemic problems. So I worked with men convicted of sexual offenses um, as a therapist before I started the work I do now. And I realized like, okay, at what point do we see all these people struggling with the same things and say, this is no longer an individual issue. This is a systemic issue. And in that context, I always applied it to work with men convicted of sexual offenses, right? How many men can com commit such horrible, horrific acts against other people and, and sexual violence? And, and sexual assault before we say, okay, maybe there's a problem with what we're teaching men about sex and emotions and communication and emotional and behavioral regulation. Like maybe there's systemic issues that we're like leading so many people down this problematic path. Mm -hmm. and, and I think now, so, like at, at 7.04 p.m. on Friday night, I now have a new vision of what mental health is, which is like we are all a product of the systemic issues and barriers we, we are. So whether we're talking about sexual violence, whether we're talking about trauma, whether we're talking about struggling with anxiety or depression, like even the mental health field has been created by a lot of straight cisgender heteronormative white men from an upper middle or upper class educated background that tends to pathologize people that don't fall into those categories yeah. so so when we stigmatize and pathologize certain behaviors or experiences I, I really think it does absolutely have to do more with our systemic or our experiences of systemic barriers and that they're absolutely normal react like we should all be freaking depressed about some <laughs> of the state of the world sometimes because we're encountering insurmountable bar barriers that are created specifically to keep us out of decision-making spaces. Mm -hmm. So if if you're com combating that day in and day out, like, of course, you're going to feel depressed or anxiety. Like, so yeah, anyway, that's a long-winded way to it's say awesome. that's what I think about mental health. <laughs> and I think like the common thread uh, I heard among uh, in what you've said uh, and what all of you have shared is like thinking about the barriers 
right? And um, I've got so many thoughts going on mm-hmm. right now. My ADHD is like definitely not mental health. Um, there's a couple of things that really there's a lot that really resonated with me, and part of that was the importance of destigmatizing. Right? What does that look like? Um, and I could relate a lot to what Devana, uh, you and Marty shared as well. I knew I, so when I started uh, seeking mental health services, I sought it not because I thought there was something wrong with me, uh, but because oh, I'd been through some shit in life. So I needed to get, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm not. You're allowed to swear. So You're allowed, allowed to swear. To swear. <laughs> I love that people ask us um, that. <laughs> so, um, so, um, just a trigger warning, um, some trauma history OER uh, for your audience and for your other anybody needs to, for a minute or so, please feel free to do so. Uh, both my parents, all, well, my, pa- my mom and my aunt experienced domestic violence. Domestic violence, violence against women generally was really common, uh, is really common in most societies and in India as well. Um, we have close to 40% of our population, depending on how you measure poverty, living in poverty and a significant living in extreme poverty. And people don't think of poverty as traumatizing, but the amount of resource deprivation that goes with poverty can have effects very similar to trauma. Um, and uh, sexual abuse, sexual violence is very, very commonplace. In India, you can't navigate as a cisgender woman. You can't navigate uh, public spaces without being molested. Um, and that is me as an Avakas uh, cisgender woman uh, navigating fairly safe for environments uh, in Bombay, which is not the most dangerous place uh, in India to live for assisted trend women, right? I'm not even talking about queer kids. I'm not talking about loka women who are part of the Dalit community or tribal communities where um, the structures are set up for exploitation. So I think I did not. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm okay. So uh, I'm like, okay, so I've been through some shit and I need to process this. Uh, but I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. And it wasn't until last year after being doing a lot of work in um, with therapists, I think almost eight years that I was like, oh my God, maybe there is some. Like, there is some impact of the trauma on me. And this is after teaching three years of trauma, right? <laughs> trauma course. So there is, I think part of that is how we think about trauma. Like, um, you said, Lydia, and like you said, Mauti and Dhanana. It's like, um, it's a cultural piece to it. Like, oh, everybody goes through shit. There are people who go through shit worse than me. Uh, people who are trafficked. There are people who, are, who live in homes that they can't, and in communities that they cannot escape. So I'm not that bad, uh, that I'm not 
something that bad, right? And I have resources. So, uh, you know, I should just get my shit together and move on. I'm in a better place, so I should just move on. Or, um, oh, these are only problems that rich white people have or rich people have or upper caste people have or whatever it is, right? Whatever that hierarchy is within our... Um, but there's another piece to it, I think, um, that relates to equity, right? Um, all of my therapists have been such a people, and most of them have been white women, who, fortunately for me, uh, had a pretty significant level of cultural competency, uh, and were working to build that cultural competency. Um, most of them were queer competent. Most of them had some understanding of immigration-related issues. But what he, what happens when a queer youth or a queer person or an uh, or a person who is who is undocumented or as or uh, has a disability that, and walks into our office and has to explain themselves and their experiences to the therapist? Um, it is. It is. And has to experience microaggression, right? So that I think is part of it as well. Is that is the deterrent or one of the barriers to resources? Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the areas. In addition to building the community networks and building um, as a social work edu- or educator, that is one of my focus is helping students learn the tools to build cultural competency, right? And all of us are exposed to a a very thin slice of life, you know? And so we all have to build cultural competency in some area or the other. But I think that that's, uh, those are some of the barriers that I've noticed Mm -hmm. that are there to that kind of prevent access to mental health services. And in that sense, it's very much an issue of equity, right? Because I've benefited so much from the work that I've been able to do and uh, the trauma I've been able to process. I'm here and able to give back because I've had the opportunities to learn to heal and grow. And everybody deserves, everybody should have access to those opportunities Mm -hmm. based on race or gender identity, sexual orientation, and all of those um, identifiers that place you higher up in the hierarchy. Is there something too, sometimes I think, but don't mind me as someone who, you know, isn't in the field and still on a journey of learning, like everyone getting checked. I still feel like mental health is kind of like seen, and this is me saying what I see it as sometimes is like the separate entity from like my physical health. And it seems like this thing that you only go when there's something wrong. Is there something to like maybe early on us all getting checked out or like seasons of life getting checked out and maybe bridging it more together with their holistic being? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's like the dream, right? Is that like we just treat it like we would any other sort of like health issue because yeah I mean it's it is just like that mm-hmm. I, sorry go ahead Shrada no I uh often so I have never wanted to be a parent and now I have three children 
Um, luckily, I didn't have to change any diapers or lights. <laughs> yes. So I'm very grateful for my spouse and my co-parents who've done all of that hard work for me. Yes. <laughs> but uh, there's this assumption that people just know how to parent, right? Right. Like you, once you give birth or you bring a child into this world or you adopt a child, you'll just know magically how to make it happen. Um, and I think uh, that's not the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many children and so many families struggling, right? Um, and so it goes back to that piece where I think, okay, mental health is very much like that. If we want a healthy society, then we need to start building those skills early on. We need to talk about our priorities. Um, uh, we need to talk about how we meet those priorities as community, right? And it's not more of a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach. So mm -hmm. that's my two cents on it. Yeah, a hundred. That's what I used to say when I would talk to people about the work I did, because I was doing concurrently when I was working with men convicted of sexual offenses, I was also working with children and teens who had experienced trauma. And I said, you'd be surprised in a week, I probably cover the same topic with both of them because mm. I'm talking about identifying emotions. I'm talking about emotional regulation. I'm talking about uh, being aware of how your thoughts affect your feelings, affect your behavior. And I'm doing both with each. So our, our choice as a society is we can either engage early on and teach kids how to do this and teach kids how to process it like we would math or science or reading, like emotional identification and regulation and understanding. Mm -hmm. can either happen then or we can wait until it, they hit rock bottom until they commit crimes against other people until they are struggling so horribly that that they are like court mandated to therapy and then they can get the help or <laughs> we can teach them early on but yeah absolutely i mean like yeah we all need some help for sure because we're not being taught it whether it's in our homes or in our schools mm -hmm. part of this is also like an honest stop taking of history, right? And looking at how we've got to a place of inequity and disparities that we've got to, right? So I don't know how that ex how this uh, year has been for y'all, but I could not get myself to sit and watch uh, the uh, trials. Mm -hmm. uh, for the murder of George Floyd, right? I could not, I just didn't, I just could not do it. Because, and I'm not, I've I been in this country for 13 years. I'm not black and I could not do it. But like this shit has, okay. This has been gone for so long and it's like nonstop. And there's just, you know, I cannot have these conversations with people. I cannot watch this happen because it's just too much. And there's a lot of privilege in being able to distance myself from this, mm -hmm. recognize that. Um, and uh, yes, we need those, we need these, we need to structure our education, our community life, our priorities as a society uh, to building these resources, but without addressing systems and systemic violence, mm -hmm. we're going to be able, we are always going to be putting on outfires because um, there's just, you know, you can't self, 
that's one of the things actually Angel and I have spoken about was you can't self-care your way out of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, a little depressing. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of power in social connection and we know that trauma can be healed through connection um, and um, social interactions, building safe and trustworthy relationships and nurturing relationships. And so we, we have what we need to literally heal the world. Yeah. Just that whether we prioritize that. I agree. I agree. And as, as I, I'm so at this point where it comes to like, when we talk about systems and we talk about like, how can we incorporate uh, mental health into like, you know, um, you know, our schools and whatnot. I feel like at this point, I don't know about y'all. I feel like at this point, we need to just throw the whole shit away. Okay. And start all <laughs> over again. No, it really, because I'm, I'm actually into the point where I think that it's great to have policies. And I think it's great to like, want to fight for certain policies and change these small bits and pieces. I'm completely for that too. But I'm at the point where it's when we really need to, we really need to put in people and not to go on the tangent of like putting people in office that are like, but I'm going to say this, like we need to put people in office who are looking at things from a holistic approach. Um, When we talk about mental health being a factor, when we talk about, uh, you know, self-care, we talk about the education system, like that should be, that should be something that looks, is looked at in a whole, like in a whole, like as a whole. Mm -hmm. But even when you think about doctors and the way that doctors do their work, you know, you have a symptom, right? And you have that one symptom and you go get, you know, you go get that looked at rather than, you know, and there are some great doctors out there. So I don't want to say that there's not. Um, But I, I think that the way doctors are taught is to not look at the whole the whole person, um, rather, okay, you have a back pain. So your back pain might be correlated to an emotional problem or, you know what I'm saying? Like back pain is not just back pain for no reason. Like there's, there's, there's so many different, uh, I guess, factors that go into back pain or chest pain or, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I just feel like we need people who look at it in a world, in a, in a wider view than in just looking at the one symptom because the one symptom is just that one symptom but it can affect other things so I, and i not to go on a tangent with that but i just that's what i'm like i'm like it just is so it's complex but if you look if you if you if people look at it like that in a whole it it kind of makes it easier for you to kind of like okay be like okay we can take this out take this out put this in put this in mm-hmm. you know i don't know mm-hmm. the whole system absolutely um, do you know i so this picture of the UN, I don't, I don't even know. I don't think it was the Security Council, but it was some, uh, 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 one of the UN organizations back in the 50s, 60s. Mm-hmm. It was all white, cis assuming, assuming that there was gender, right? And I'm like, how is this group of people making decisions uh, or the entire world, they right. could have an understanding. And so absolutely, representation at the macro meso levels are mm-hmm. so critical to creating the kind of change that we want to see because um, 
Yeah, for the same reason that, you know, we need to have people with different learning experiences and those who are affected by decisions made at the table making the decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. When you talked about um, the recent trial for the police officer Chauvin, um, but over these last, I think, six, seven years now, um, I... Until these recent years, I always thought of mental health as like a personal issue or a personal, you know, experience thing. But this country, (laughs) this country puts us through it. I did not watch the entire trial either. I I waited for um, the the conviction. It's not dissenting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that was all I watched. But the anxiety I felt waiting for the worst to happen and then when they found him guilty, the numbness just mm-hmm. mm. and the the numbness to the fact that I, I expected that this would not change anything and something like this was going to happen to someone else. Only for it to happen to another young woman mm-hmm. like the next while he was being yeah. Yeah. found guilty. It's just these pressures from and I know it's not just, just, just this society we live in, but like um I think I personally have always undercounted how much um, the w- the places we live, how much they can impact us and our mental health and our relationships to one another. And also like the environment, like things going wrong with pollution or like, you know, your aunt just got cancer from like, how does that, you know, impact us, you know? Yeah, well, and you know, I was thinking about um, that too. I actually was just talking in a presentation I did about trauma-informed care and cultural sensitivity the other day, because and I, I always bring up how like watching police brutality happen across our country for years, like decades, obviously. I mean, this has been happening since the inception of police, obviously. But seeing it at such a wide scale as as we've globalized our media and we've we've become more connected on social media, we're seeing it so much more often. And that is traumatizing. And our brains are not like wired to be able to intake so much trauma from so far away that is still traumatizing to see traumatizing for our like mirror neurons to like empathize with right like so then we see that we're like okay that could happen to me like it we don't have to experience a trauma directly to still have the symptoms of it as if it happened to us because that like that's how our brains work that's like our survival mechanisms for like making sure we don't poke the bear too Mm -hmm. um but so like our our brains are just like not wired to handle all this information like so i I don't see it as like a weakness of people or like, I mean, there is a certain element of privilege to be able to step away from it. But I also see it as like our brains are not made to handle this much like overload, like trauma overload, especially when we don't have any mechanism by which to change it. Like if we were just because there's (laughs) shit, there's plenty trauma in our community already. Like there we all have seen it, experienced it, worked with it. Like we know that there's enough trauma in Erie County alone that we can become overwhelmed with and we could have a reasonable impact on the, like that trauma and preventing it or addressing it and, and healing it, let alone things that are happening on the other side of the country, on the other side of the world, like our brains, it's just, so I think that there is something when we, we talk about self-care, like there's something to be said about being able to unplug from that or being able to find, okay, what's the, like, what's my local work? How can I address this? How can I heal this either personally, internally, or locally? Because that's rarely where we can have the impact. Um, because yeah, it, it's overwhelming to see it happen. 
everywhere. Like our brains can't handle that. And that's okay. Like that, again, it's normal. <laughs> that's normal to be overwhelmed by that. We're like, we're not made to handle all this shit. But what I struggle with is that we're expected to. Like you, I don't watch those videos, but this video comes out of someone being murdered and we're all talking about it, but now I'm expected to perform like nothing is wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like during the time we should have had like time off or like, you know, like as a, you know, but again, that would incorporate self-care into like, into like government. They'd have been like, okay, everybody like take time off completely from work, everything. Like we're shutting down, we're staying home, we're staying home. You know, like you don't have to go to work. Cause I was even thinking, listen, this is off topic a little bit, but not off, off topic. So I was telling age, I said, you know what? Wait a minute. I said, slavery didn't end it, right? We was throwing that out there. We had to take care of ourselves. Nobody said, hey, y'all, we, you, we enslaved you for this long. And then now we're going to give you some time to not work for us again. You know what I'm saying? I know I'm just going on a rant, but I just started thinking, I'm like, when have Black folk really had a break, you know, from the, from the trauma, from the, from, and I, from the, from the everything, like it, it really had me really, fr- I'm, there's times I get frustrated thinking about it because I'm like, either that or I need reparations because this is at this point, like there has been no, no respect when it comes to our mental health in the way that we've been, we, every day we can look online, almost makes me want to cry and we can see black and brown bodies. Um, you know, another person who has passed away, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's, it, I don't want to be numb to it because like sometimes I'll just scroll and I don't want to be so numb to it that mm-hmm. it doesn't affect me, but it does affect me daily. And Marty, when you talk about like it affecting everybody, there is a collective, uh, a collective consciousness and there's a collective feel of like the trauma that we're all going through. But I don't think people understand the impact of how like we do need a break. We need a moment like we I know people, they can throw out checks all day, but it's still not enough because we still have to go into our, still have to go work, go to work and maybe possibly deal with microaggressions, mm-hmm. racism. Like, it's like, at what point do we get a break? I know that, and those are me getting, that's me having like emotional, uh, emotional feelings. Like, this is a lot. Like, in yes, thank you for your companies who are, you know, saying, okay, well, we are going to do uh, you know, a self-care day, but it's not enough. Like we need, you know, like, and I don't want to take us to a dark, like in a dark, but it's, it's the reality. Like as a black woman, I don't want to be strong. You know, there's times I want to be weak. And even in, you know, positions where I had to like, you know, before my position I'm at now, when I worked at my other position being gaslit, like I couldn't have emotional feelings towards the things that were going on with me at my job being, uh, being, uh, you know, gaslit, like, okay, well, what you're experiencing is not really like truth, but yes, it is. Like, I'm feeling this, like I'm, my ears are getting hot, just kind of feel, thinking about it. It's like, you know, I don't think people understand the impact of, of a lot of the, a lot of the shit that has happened that black people still have to like, just, and people of color and all, not just black people, because we're seeing it too with um, the Asian community of what they're going through, the trauma, you know what I'm saying? We're seeing it across the country, things that are happening in India with farmers. Like, it's just like, what is going on? Like, at this point, like, 
mental health and, and, and all that needs to really be talked about like on a daily, not just one month. And I know we're talking about it in this episode, but like, this is to take it back to our families. Like we need to talk about it, check in with your families, check in with your friends. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, it's a lot, you know, not to go on. I literally just went on a tangent, but you know, and I think, uh, Devon, but what you said, it comes back to what you were saying to us um, in terms of what can we within our institutions and within our systems to do, do to acknowledge mm-hmm. and repair the harm that is done and acknowledge the impact, right? Um, in, the so- in our social work department, one of the things that we do is, for example, and Lydia knows about this, is provide um, uh, late passes. So that takes some of the pressure off of the students, right? Uh, to um, not be able to submit by a deadline and lose uh, points, right? Mm-hmm. How do we create trauma-informed systems? So that is part of it, right? through a pandemic, uh, we're going through, uh, we've, we've literally witnessed the murder of a Black person on TV. Yeah. Um, we, there's, we've seen the attacks on so many Asian American people. We know there are so many issues. How are we accommodating for that? And that right. is so recognizing that the system that we are trying to function in was built for white uh, or upper caste, upper class men who mm-hmm. in, sitting at home and taking care of all the other things so they could go and do the work, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to all survive in a system that was not built for mm-hmm. uh, an inclusive, to be inclusive. Um, and so mm-hmm. how do we change these systems? How we, within our own, um, uh, what do you say, frames? No, um, um, network of influence, I guess, or of influence, right? And um, so I think part of that is going back to, yes, what do we, how do we need to change um, the status quo or business as usual? Because it isn't business as usual. Our workplace is a lot more diverse. Our workforces, our lives are a lot more connected to, uh, I mean, this was a, joke that I made um, some years ago because Gap had come up with an ad about being inclusive because they had clothes that were supposedly clothes for queer kids. And I'm like, yeah, clothes made for kids by kids. And so, you know, things that are, uh, we are no longer affected only by our immediate community, right? Things we consume come at a cost to communities all over the world. Um, anyways, I think I lost my chain of thought there. But I, yeah, so systems. Uh, there's another bit I wanted to actually share with y'all. So some years ago, I had gone through this existential crisis, right? Like, oh, human suffering has been around as long as there's been human beings. So like, doing the work that I'm doing, what is the point of all this? Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Finally, I've come to understand that there is a lot of dignity and worth in every, every person's experience. And I think that is my meaning in continuing to do the work uh, and wanting to do the work because every person um, 
is has dignity and worth and has and should and has the right to a meaningful, fulfilling, healthy, loving relationships and loving life. So I'm that is my that is what um the conclusion that I've come to. And when I feel drained or burned out, um, I feel like that is my go-to. Yes. 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 <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, for real. Thank you for one of you being so wonderful and holding space and making space and listening and talking and sharing. Yeah. Thank you. This has been such a powerful conversation. Like, I almost want to immediately sign off and like listen to it again and just like listen to right. it on repeat. like I feel like there's so many nuggets of mm-hmm. wisdom both like for systemic work and for like all the work that we all are doing whether it's doula ship mm-hmm. or community organizing or therapy or mm-hmm. or political work um but there's also like a lot of internal nuggets of wisdom of like yeah like you just said like we all and, and like the power of applying that to ourselves right mm-hmm. I think all of us and and Devana you and I have talked about this before that like when you commit to working with like your heart on your sleeve, like you do something that you really care about with all of yourself, not everyone, especially a lot of people that go into positions of power are leading because they care. They're, they're doing it because they're for power or profit or or some gain, but it's not because they care about, like, it's not with their heart. And so when we lead with our heart, when we do things with our heart, it hurts a lot more when it doesn't work out or it hurts right. a lot more when we confront bears. It hurts a lot more when we see other people struggling because we care so fucking much. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's also just some really powerful messaging in here in this whole conversation, but especially in what you just said, Shrada, about like we also deserve to to have a good life and a happy life. And that I'm sure a lot of our listeners, I'm sure can relate because I know many of our listeners are are good, like generous people that give to other people and commit their lives to supporting other people and helping other people. But amidst Mental Health Awareness Month, I think it's so important that we also are like giving grace to ourselves and saying, I also deserve that. And there can be balance there. I can be helping other people and I can also say, you know what, today I need today for me. Because that is also like supporting, like you like that can that like greater consciousness of all of us, right? That if I can be lifted up a little higher in my vibration today, that maybe yes. I can lift everyone else's vibration later. Yes, uh, yes. So go back and listen to the fill your cup episode too, because I think we talked about that one. Too. <laughs> listen to this one and fill your cup, because then that would be together. That's what that talks yeah. about. That's true. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, before we wrap, we have to definitely ask you our question of the end. And that is, what makes Erie yours, Shrada? Erie is home to a lot of my chosen family. Hmm. And I know it is home to a lot of people who have chosen to make it home. And I think... um, for that reason in itself, very much um, it behooves us to rest mm-hmm. in souls in the city. Yeah. Yeah. I do mine, so. <laughs> yeah. yes. Thank you for sharing and thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you for having me and being patient with all the tangents. And I really enjoyed and learned a lot from this conversation. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to the Art Eerie Podcast. 
Community voices unpacking Erie's baggage and speaking truth to power. You can continue the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Our Erie Series. Funding provided by United Way of Erie and Ember and Forge. Music produced by Light Shadow. We appreciate you for listening to the Our Erie podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight. Peace.